Good evening, everybody. It's lovely to see you, and particularly for those who are backing up after a night of dancing last night. I've seen, I've seen some things which I cannot unsee. That's a lot of fun. Uh, brothers and sisters, we have uh, a quite a meaty passage uh, in front of us this evening, and I just want to highlight from the front, we actually can't cover it all in the next hour and a half, uh, or even two hours if I was to go that long. Uh, we do have speak this evening, uh, as was mentioned before, so maybe there's questions there. But also, if you do have questions, please feel free to come and chat to me afterwards as well. Uh, we can't cover the whole text. There's lots in there, and it also has lots of pastoral issues. But we don't want you to leave thinking that you can't ask a question or, or have a conversation. You can talk to myself or, or Sam uh, or Reese or uh, uh, Larissa or I think Alex will be back by then as well. So please do take that opportunity. Um, I think this passage is particularly challenging for at least three reasons. Uh, the first one is just to the seriousness of the warning that we had there in chapter 6. It's impossible for those who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. That is a serious warning. What are we to do with that? And that's, by the way, one of uh, five warnings in Hebrews. This is the third one. I think the second reason it's related to the first one is uh, it raises theological questions about how this teaching fits uh, with the rest of the Bible. What do we do then with divine sovereignty and human free will and responsibility or the doctrine of election and our own free will? Those kind of questions might be bouncing around your head. I think thirdly and perhaps most powerfully this is a deeply pastoral issue. If you're like me, you have family and you have friends who have previously declared their faith in the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've prayed together. You've opened God's Word together. You, you may have done evangelism together. You've shared Christian life together. But sadly now, they no longer profess Christ. And so because of that, we, we need to approach this passage, God's Word together, with great humility. Rather than saying, this is what we want it to say, we, we need to stop and say, no, what is the writer to the Hebrews actually teaching us? And we need to do that gently and humbly, knowing it is God's Word. Now, the, the letter of the Hebrews, more generally, of course, was written actually as an encouragement to a bunch of Christians who were facing uh, stress and, and challenges and persecution. And the author's writing to say, don't give up, don't drift, keep looking to Jesus. He is better and greater above all things, which is why we've got the one-line summary, the Twitter handle, better. If you were to describe Hebrews in one word, that's a good word to choose. Jesus is better. And what we see as we read through his letter, he does this in kind of two main ways. He does it in, in, firstly, to comfort those who feel anxious, who are worried, who are concerned. He wants to, for them to feel the security of their salvation. Don't give up. Christ has you. He's your high priest. And we see that particularly in the second half of the passage this evening. But the author also wants to challenge those who feel complacent who think they've got it together. 
And that's particularly where our passage starts this evening in 5.11. He is concerned for those who are spiritually lazy. Have a look at 5.11 with me as we start looking at the text. He writes, we have much to say about this. Now the this, by the way, is just the previous section. He wants to keep talking about how Jesus is our high priest and he'll get there, chapter 7, come back next week, you'll see, you'll see more of that. But he says, but it's hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. What, it, what he literally says actually is, you have become lazy of hearing, of understanding. That is, they're not stupid, they've become apathetic, lazy. It's actually uh, the word we get the word slug from. They've become sluggards. It's a very old-fashioned word, right? Sluggards. And by the way, that's the same word in 6.12 where he says to them, we do not want you to become lazy. Don't be a slug. And what I want to do is, particularly for looking at verses 5.11 to 6.12, Three things we learn. Firstly, he's at pains to point out that lazy Christians do not grow spiritually. That's 5.11 to 6.3. Lazy Christians do not grow spiritually. Secondly, lazy Christians are in serious, serious spiritual danger. That's chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. And therefore... Uh, thirdly, be diligent. Keep looking to Jesus as, as your hope. Trust his promises. And that's uh, six readings at the end of the chapter, but we're going to particularly focus on 9 to 12. And then 13 to 20 is a whole other sermon, which I'm happy to give later if you're keen. We won't vote on it. We'll, we'll have it over dinner or something. Let's look at that first point, though. Uh, lazy Christians do not grow spiritually. Uh, what's interesting is, it, it, the concern for the Hebrews is, not that they're just not growing, they're actually going backwards. They're regressing. Notice that he calls them babies. Now, we have a baby uh, around church, in fact, Ezra was here before. Babies are cute, right? They've got those overly fat cheeks that you just want to poke and, you know, you make silly faces at them. Uh, that's not what he's, what he's saying. He's not saying you're cute and have got a fat face. He's, he's saying, well, you might, but what he's saying is, you're immature, you're behaving like an infant. You're a child, you're a baby, and these are grown men and women. It's not meant to be a compliment, it's actually a rebuke. You think you've got it together, well, you're not even average. You've regressed back to being a baby. Verse uh, 12, in fact, though by this time, some of you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the elemental truths of God's Word over again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, people here are starting to be teachers. There are not many three- or two-year-olds, I would be aware, at university doing an education degree, right? You put them in charge of Year 9, what would happen? Disaster, right? But they should be teachers. The author's saying to them, look, guys, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up, to stop behaving spiritually like little babies. And in verse 14, he, he kind of helpfully outlines for us, well, what does this look like? What, is it, what does it look like to grow up? What do I do to do this? He says there in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, 
who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Do you see what he's saying there about what it looks like to be a mature Christian? Firstly, you need to have consistency. Now he says there, by constant use. In other words, our spiritual disciplines, our time in God's word, our time in prayer, our time with God's people. Regular. Not ad hoc. Not at the bottom of our list. And it needs to be intentional as well. Notice that they have trained themselves. That's the word that an athlete would do. Now, we've got athletes here too. We've got some guys I know who play water polo. And I'm sure there's diets and regimes that you would have to do. And if you're training hard for water polo, you're focused. You do, I presume, some kind of swimming. And you're horse riding and you combine them and that's what happens, right? In other words, you train for the event you're trying to, to do well in. And if the event here is spiritual maturity, what are you working on that you need to get, get stronger at? What are you praying for that you need to grow in? Because here's the thing, everybody here already has a spiritual habit. You already have one. Um, practice does not make perfect, practice makes permanent. And you have a cycle. Maybe your, maybe your current habit is pray once a week when I remember to go to church. That is, we're in a routine. So the question is, well, what do you need to change about your routine? Because you may have a good routine or a bad routine, but you've got a routine. You've got a habit. You have a practice. If you're to grow spiritually, are you going to be intentional? Are you going to train yourself to think, these are the things that I need to work on? What's your plan? Because just breathing is not enough of a plan intentionality. Notice the result here is that as they grow, uh, as they do these things, they're able to distinguish good from evil. In other words, there is godly wisdom that is gained through becoming spiritually mature. As you learn about God from His Word and grow close to Him in prayer, it's not just a feeling of being closer to God, which is absolutely true. There's an outworking of that feeling. You turn away from sin and you turn towards God and you love him more and you love your neighbour as yourself more and it has outworkings in all kinds of practical ways. And see, you see mature Christians as they grow, it's not just head knowledge, yes that's important, but it comes out in practical service. They're the ones who are stacking the chairs before church, who are cleaning up, who are reading the Bible with people, who are praying for their friends. Who are, who are men and women of integrity at university. It, it comes out in godly practice, knowing good from evil. So the first point is, do you have a plan? Do you have a plan not to be a baby? Well, secondly, we come to the more serious part of this text, where we see that lazy Christians are in serious danger. Verses 4 and following. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, who have fallen away, sorry, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. 
Do you feel the weight of those words? The people described in those first four who's, who are's, aren't they the kind of people you wish you were in your small group or your friends group or here at church, right? They seem to have all the blessings of the Christian life. But yet he says it's impossible for those who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. What's going on? Well, that that little phrase, fallen away, literally means to fall beside, but often means to to kind of go astray spiritually, to walk away spiritually. Uh, Very interestingly, that's the same root, the same kind of verb as in Luke 10, 18, where Jesus says that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, we need to be careful when we see words that are exactly the same or similar because uh, the word fall is also used in the gravitational sense in Scripture. Something falls over is not the same as someone falling away. So we just need to be careful about automatically assuming it's the same thing. But it's just interesting. We see both of those things at play. So let me say four things about this warning that are hopefully helpful. Because it is, it is, it is complicated. Uh, first thing I want to say about this warning is, it's actually not unique in Scripture. This is not the only place uh, in Scripture where God warns people about the danger of falling away. Both in the Old and the New Testament, there are many passages that are very similar. Let me give you one example from the Old Testament that I, that I kind of found through my preparation for this sermon. It's Ezekiel 18, 21 to 32. And what's interesting about Ezekiel 18 is it very way mirrors the structure of Hebrews 6. And there are even words that are, that are similar in, in both sections, including the idea that God is, not trustworthy, that God is trustworthy later on, uh, which we'll see parallels to Ezekiel 18. Uh, anyway, let me just read you briefly from that. This is from verse 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things as the wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. Because of their unfaithfulness, they are guilty of, or literally says, because of their falling away, is what it actually says uh, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, it's kind of slightly complicated there, but same words. And because of the sins they have committed, they will die. It's a very serious warning in Ezekiel. Or when we get to the New Testament, we have Mark chapter 4, Jesus' uh, uh, profound parable about the sower and the seeds, where the sower, the word of God, goes out and lands on different soils. And two of the soils, one is the soil is shallow. And so initially there's growth. It seems like it's going to be a successful plant, but there's nowhere for the roots to go. And so it dries out and it dies. Well, there's the third soil where the the plant grows initially and looks good, but then it's choked by the concerns of this world and it too fails and dies. And we have Jesus' own words in Matthew 7, 21, where he says, "'Not everyone who says to me, "'Lord, Lord,' will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? 
Didn't I cast demons out in your name? Didn't I do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I say those things just because it's not as if we can kind of skip over this passage and say it's too hard. We still need to confront these warnings in Scripture. They are part of God's Word, and therefore we must take them seriously. Well, secondly, I want to say that this warning is, is more than just sinning, if you can, when I say just sinning, please hear what I'm saying there, or even denying Jesus, we shall see. Uh, in 1 John 1, which is a passage we often use in church when we do confession, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, Christians wrestle with sin. That's the reality of our life, this side of Jesus' second coming. And verse 9 goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There is forgiveness of sins for Christians. So it can't just be about sin here. And even more than that, in, in all four of the Gospels, we have the story of Jesus, uh, sorry, of Peter's denial of Jesus, all four. Uh, he denies Jesus out loud in front of lots of people, not once, not twice, three times. Three times overtly denies Christ. And not just, oh, I don't know who this guy is. Um, in Matthew 26, this is what he says. It says, Then Peter began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, not swore at them, by the way, uh, swore to, that is, he declared an oath, right? I do not know the man. That is an extraordinarily a huge thing. The disciple who said, I will die for you, Christ, I will, I will kill for you, Christ, denies him three times. And what's the outcome of that story? Jesus graciously restores him. Three times, well, there were three times that he does it in the, in the passage. Now, why is it important? Why am I saying these things? It's because my concern is that you may fear that you are someone who has so much sin or guilt or things that you're so deeply ashamed of that you are beyond God's forgiveness. And that these verses that we've just read are pointing to your heart and saying, see, I told you, God could never love you, you have no hope. There is no chance for forgiveness for me. Can I say to you, if that's you, brother, sister, take comfort. Take comfort. Uh, a deep awareness of your own sinfulness and guilt and your desperate need for forgiveness is a sign that God's Spirit is at work in you. It's a sign that the Spirit is doing its work and bringing you to repentance. If someone wants to repent and, and, and be in a relationship with Christ, they are not the ones mentioned in this context here, in these verses. A person who comes in true faith and repentance will always be welcomed back. This is the story of the prodigal son, right? 
Now, the prodigal son, in the, in the story, he leaves his mother and father. It's not just that he says, hey, mum and dad, can I have a couple of bucks? I need to go out. I'm leaving home. Off to you. need a couple of bucks. He actually asks for his inheritance before he leaves, which is a way of saying, mum and dad, you are dead to me. You're in a culture where your parents have a big say in what you do. You, you get how bad that is, right? That's the first century. You honour your mother and father. Not just, I'm going to do whatever unicorns I want. No, I'm going to take all your money as well, mum and dad, and you're dead to me. I never want to hear from you again. And he goes and he, his life is spent wasted. And he ends up feeding pigs, which is like the bottom of the barrel, right? It's the worst job, worse than McDonald's, the worst job manageable because they're Jewish and pigs are dirty. And he says, well, maybe if I come back, my father, maybe the best I can do is be a slave. It's better than eating pig food. Just. And, and, and as, as he comes home, his father sees him. And what does his father do? Does he say, oh, look who's come back. This time you will respect your mother and father. You can pay off your debt to me. In fact, he doesn't stand at all. He runs to the prodigal son. In a culture where great men didn't do couch to 5K, they were, they were standing still the whole time, right? It was a, a... You would not have any dignity if you ran in public as a great man. But so great is his love for this son who's said you're dead and now wants to come back that he runs. He doesn't care. And Jesus says, that is how your heavenly father sees you. So let me assure you that if you are someone who is deeply repentful and feels the weight and burden of your sin and you run to God, in fact, he is running to you. Be assured, be of comfort. Thirdly, we must still take this warning very seriously. What I believe the author of the Hebrews has in mind when he speaks of falling away is nothing less than a conscious, deliberate and persistent abandonment of Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Conscious, deliberate, persistent abandonment of Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. It's nothing less than, than a, the word is often used, apostasy. From the living God. God has promised all who wish to be forgive uh, uh, to forgive all who repent. But Scripture and our experience warn us that it's possible for human beings to arrive at a state of heart and life that they are so hardened against God and His good purposes that they will not repent. Uh, Jesus Himself says something similar in Luke twelve ten. You may have heard this verse and kind of wrestled with it as well. It says, uh, this is Jesus speaking, and everyone, who sp uh, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whomever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Often this is referred to as, you may have heard it, the unforgivable sin. You'll notice too that in the Hebrews passage, the author refers to those who have had been in partnership, fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In verse 4. 
And I think there's a theological link here. The reason that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable and the reason why in this context those who have fallen away cannot be restored, are beyond repentance, is because of the role of the Holy Spirit in the work of the believer, in the life of the believer. See, the Spirit's works, a part of its job, the Holy Spirit's job, is to open our eyes and see just how sinful we are and convict us of that. In other words, it, it brings us to repentance and unites us with Jesus because we realize, wow, do I need repentance? Uh, do I need forgiveness? And so it takes us to the cross. And so when we sin, there is still hope that the Spirit to do its work amongst us, who convict us of sin. And part of our confession in, in church each week is being reminded of that. When we're prompted by the Spirit, yes, I can come to Christ. But if we see and taste the power of the Holy Spirit and the goodness of God's Word and the beauty on the work of Christ, and we reject that as utter garbage to be despised, not just wrestle with it, despised, not just have doubts, despised, we are shutting ourselves off from the only one who could ever bring us to repentance. So falling away and the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit are similar in the sense that they are both acts of resistance that so belittle the Holy Spirit so grievously that it withdraws forever its convicting power and therefore we're never able to repent and be forgiven. As verse 6, 6 puts it so bluntly, it's as if they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. See, the cross of Christ is an, is an astonishing act of selfless love and grace. The Son of God gives Himself freely to die for our sins. That is how you see the cross as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, how do you see that? Well, he's saying, you don't see the cross as salvation. You see it as something which just makes Jesus look despicable and laughable and an act of disgrace. That's all you see it as. A cross is for the worst scum of the earth. Ha, that's who Jesus is. Because see how your, your view of the cross is so vastly different. An act of salvation, an act of derision. That's how you then see the cross in this context. And we need to be honest, this is a terrible picture. There's nothing redeeming here. It cannot be toned down. We need to feel the weight of it. We need to feel the weight of it. And so fourthly, this helps us understand that this, brothers and sisters, is a pastoral warning rather than a theological argument or debate. The author is not trying to resolve some theologically complicated tension about your doctrine of election and how we understand whether Christians can fall away. That's not the point of this passage. Now, by the way, you might, you might feel that, that's okay. But the response to this passage is not, thank you, author of the Hebrews. I'm now confused at a deeper level about the nature of the doctrine of election. Now, you might be there, that's not the purpose, though. <laughs> the response is this. Do you hear the seriousness of the warning? That's the pastoral 
implications of this. Do you hear it? Do you know that Jesus is your only hope? Do you know that? Live it out. Seek to imitate those who do. Trust in his promises. That is what the implications of this warning are. It's a pastoral warning. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those uh, for whom it is farmed, receive a blessing from God, he says. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burnt. Take spiritual maturity seriously, he says. Take it seriously. It's, it's not something you play around with. So what about our family and friends? The people that we love deeply and grieve that they have walked away from Jesus. Well, the reality is we actually do not know their final standing before God. Only God knows the true state of a person's heart. Only God knows their ultimate destiny. And so we need to let God be God. As we're told in chapter uh, 6, verse 10, God is not unjust. God is not unjust. And we know that sometimes people who have turned away from God for a time come back. The Apostle Peter, right? And so what do we do? Well, we pray earnestly. We pray earnestly for wandering family and friends, knowing that God in his mercy and power is sovereign. That's what we do. God is not unjust. Well, thirdly, we need to therefore, in light of this, be diligent and cling and hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus verses 9 to 12. Uh, The writer makes it clear, by the way, he doesn't actually believe, he's not concerned particularly for the Hebrews that they're falling away. Look in in verse 9, he says, on the contrary, we are convinced of better things, in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. Nevertheless, he urges them not to slack off, you know, not, not to be lazy. Look at verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. You've shown diligence, keep going. So that what you hope for may be fully realized. See, diligence is the opposite to laziness. That's what he's saying. He says, don't be lazy, be diligent. Those things he's outlined previously in chapter 5. Take sin seriously, take your own spiritual work seriously, he says. And notice too, there's that call there in verse 12. We do not want you to be lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. There's a call there to imitate others. Now, why is that important? Well, the first thing is, if you are a younger Christian, one of the best ways you can mature is see an older Christian live. How do they live? What's life like at uni? I'm brand new to Melbourne. What do I do? I've only been a Christian for a a month or or two. But there's the other side of that coin too. If you are someone who's been a Christian for a while, guess what? 
You are a role model, whether you like it or not. Your, your, uh, um, your lacking of slacking and your diligence is not just for you, it's so that you are a role model for others. They will look and see how you live. They will see how you respond to adversity. And so one of the great things about a church is we have this dynamic. You can see others. You're starting uni for the first time and perhaps this is the first time you've had to live out away from your home and your parents. Well, how do you face that challenge? Guess what? You have brothers and sisters here who have been that, done there, and got, been there, done that, and got the T-shirt, right? Look for brothers and sisters who've been there and done that. Those who've been there and done that and got the T-shirt, be aware, your responsibility is to live lives that others can see and imitate. It is a deep and big responsibility. And just because you're 21 or 22, don't think you are not a role model. It's very old for uni church. I'm not going to tell you how old that makes me. Slightly older than 22. We give fighter jets to 22-year-olds, right? With millions of bucks. This is more important. Okay? Just because you're young doesn't mean you're not a role model. Think about how you live how your diligence is expressed in service. Notice too that the results of this diligence is that our hope is fully realised, that is, full assurance, uh, complete certainty that our salvation is in Christ. And how can we do this? Well, he's been challenging us, the author of the Hebrews, but he leaves us with this beautiful picture in the end of uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Yeah, over the page. Sorry, guys, I should have mentioned that. That's how long our reading was tonight. I went over the page. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That, that's our anchor. That, that's the thing that we cling to when we feel uncertain, when we're in a new context, when we're struggling at university, we say, look, Jesus has been there. He has done that. He's entered the high place. That was the place where the priest would come once a year to do business with God for the sins of the people, completed in Christ. It's the one thing that will not change during your time at St. Jude's, during your time at university, during your time on this earth. Christ's secure work for you. And because we love you so much at St. Jude's, we have gone to all the work of giving you a visual reminder. Just last week, I've had some in stained glass windows installed at the back of church. Have a look. Just as for you, you visual learners, don't say we don't care for you at our church. Uh, there are three women at the back there. Uh, have a look, you can, this is genuine, we really installed them. Uh, they are symbolizing faith, charity or love and hope. Uh, I've always thought the woman in the middle was like the mum at the end of church with the kids asking to borrow the iPhone, but that's actually love, that's what that one is. But you notice the woman on the right has an anchor. She's not a sailor, by the way. She is reminding you of the hope you have in Christ each time you walk into this building and each time you leave. Look up, there she is. She's saying, what are you saying? Your hope is in Christ. Now you come to church, you're anxious, you're worried. My hope is in Christ. You leave church hopefully less anxious and worried. <laughs> Your hope is in Christ. Let me pray that we would live that out. 
that we would take the warning seriously and cling to the hope in Christ. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these, these powerful words that you've given us. Help us to be serious about our spiritual growth. Help us to take seriously the warnings that you give us in Scripture. Help us in our diligence to keep our hope in Christ. And Father, you know that our hearts break for those who have previously walked with you in our eyes, but now seemingly have walked away. And so we ask in your mercy, just like the Apostle Peter, that you will bring them back to you. For your glory's sake we pray. Amen.